Lord, as we prayed this morning and prepared for service, I was reminded of the men on the road to Emmaus as they walked with you, Jesus, unknowingly. And after you departed, they said, did, we, did our hearts not burn within us when he spoke to us? And this morning, it's my deepest prayer that we'd walk out of here this morning and say our hearts burned within us as we studied his holy word. We knew as we read his word that he was speaking to us. Lord, we believe your word's infallible and errant. It's inspired by your Holy Spirit. So we come to it with postures of worship, Lord. This isn't a time to pass intellectual information, but this is a time to encounter the God of all creation. Speak to us, we pray. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, somebody say amen. Well, I've been reading on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Um, he was a Welshman, uh, grew up in Wales. He, he spoke English. It's a second language. I was listening to old recordings of him preach the other night, and my wife came in and said, what are you listening to? Because he's got quite an accent. And she says, you, I could never listen to that. He's the best preacher in the world, was the best preacher in the world. He is a Welshman, but he lived in London, and uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician, and he was a premier physician, and he worked at the most established hospital. It was a little bit of a like uh, prestigious role that he was in, and uh, but he attended a Welsh church and was a layman, and he gave a speech at his church um, in London. Again, it's a Welsh church in London, um, and, and he called the speech The Tragedy of Modern Wales, and he had... Um, intended to give a speech on predestination, um, but he felt that the Lord asked him to talk about the the state of modern Wales. Uh, Wales has a great history of revival, of, of God moving in incredible ways. Um, but he made a handful of points. Here are his points. One, he said, education, particularly diplomas, have become the means to judge a man rather than by his character. He said, the great preachers of Wales, uh, Daniel Rowland was one that was from his town, and he mentioned often, not one of the great preachers of Wales had degrees. Two, he said financial success was the ultimate end goal. He said they all walk around asking one another, how is he doing? Is he going well? And he said, we all know what we mean by asking that question is how much money does he make? And if a man makes a lot of money, then we deem him as successful and prosperous he said, next, the Welsh were proud, and, and every man was brilliant. He said, every article you read in the newspaper uh, is claiming that some man was brilliant. What he did today was brilliant. The way he played that sport was absolutely brilliant. Everyone was brilliant. He pointed to the political state. Then he said that pure worship was forsaken. The singing of hymns was entertainment and tradition, but it wasn't an expression of true worship. It was just going to the motion. Maybe they, they liked the sound of the hymns or the tradition of the hymns, but no one sang a hymn from a place of pure worship intending to encounter the holy, thrice holy God of the universe. And then he started on the state of preaching, which was like his pedestal. He said a society in this state could never produce real preachers. He said, you never know what our preachers believe. He said, they don't sing the truth with fire in their bones. He said that preaching had become a mere profession. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones is something like 25 years old. He's a, he's a doctor, again. He's not a, he's, not a, he's not a preacher. But he's given this speech on the modern tragedy of Wales, and the newspapers catch it. So the newspapers publish it, and um, 
all of a sudden he finds himself in the limelight. And everyone um, has quite an opinion about what um, young Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say. And so he's asked to give the lecture again. Give the lecture again in a public setting. This time it's going to be um, the Congress of the Union of Welsh Societies. So in kind of a dignified society setting, they ask 25-year-old Martin Lloyd-Jones to give this speech again. Now, he goes down as a famous preacher, but remember at this time, he's just a young doctor. And so he gave the lecture again, but he addressed a few critiques that he had received first. First, he addressed the idea that he was not patriotic. Then he said, how can a man who lives in London give a critique of Wales? And he responded that the reason he gave the critique was because he was patriotic. He could not look at his nation, consider the state of moral decay, consider the historical moves of God that Wales had experienced, and not say something. He said, on the other hand, I, the reason I've said what I said and, and meant what I said was because I do love my country. Next, they said that he was too negative. He said that he could sympathize with that critique because he was often told that he was pessimistic. But he said as he thought, he concluded that there was a logical fallacy in that argument and that he was not too negative, but without the conviction of the Spirit, no one could really turn and receive the gospel. And so it was impossible to to be too negative to a people who have not received Jesus. Rather, he was arguing for their need. Well, then he lunged back and he gave the same lecture again. But this time, after the conclusion of the lecture, the society had um, asked a seasoned minister in his 60s to respond to everything that 25-year-old Dr. Lloyd-Jones had just said. The man stands up. He's been a pastor in Wales his whole life. He stands up and he argues that there are men of God in the pulpits of Wales, just like Daniel Rowland and, and before. And there, there was um, a true expression of Christianity and that the, the times were just different. And these preachers had different problems to preach to in, a, in an age of different times. And the whole crowd clapped and applauded because Dr. Williams had defended them. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones jumps to his feet and he says, well, if there are men like Daniel Rowland still preaching in Wales, today where's their fruit in other words the proof is in the pudding we're obviously declining where are the great preachers I'm preaching to you again from somewhere so the newspaper reporter said that that every time that uh, pastor Williams would respond that, that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had something to say right back sharp. And he said it was the most interrupted meeting he had ever been in because they were just cutting each other off left and right. But when all was said and done, it was clear, um, again, Dr. Lloyd-Jones is still a physician. He'll go on to be a preacher later. Um, it was clear that this um, layman who was called cruel Um, argued out of a sincere love for his country. If he didn't love Wales, he wouldn't have taken the criticism that he took. And second, it was clear that he argued from experience. He was arguing as a young man who grew up in this country, grew up in stale religion, who had never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. He grew up in a lethargic church. And he had been broken over that. It It was clear that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had, had in the secret place of prayer 
met with God concerning his nation. It was clear that he had been broken over his own sin. It was clear that he had had a revelation of the true gospel, mainly that it's only by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost that any man can be born again and escape his deeds, uh, his, his state of sinfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God was going to have to shake men awake and that, 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 that lazy kind of political, he talked a lot about political preaching, could never cause anyone to be born again. And he argued from a place of brokenness. And now it's primarily my point this morning, and we'll move on to the text, that brokenness has an argument. It's primarily my point that broken men and women have something to say. The reason our pulpits and our nation have nothing to say, it's just gibberish passing from the lips of a man to the ears of people who really don't care to listen anyway. The reason our pulpits have nothing to say is because our pulpits know nothing of brokenness. Broken men and women have something to say. I think it's only broken men and women who can really preach the gospel to begin with. You haven't really looked your sin in the face and acknowledged that the blood of Jesus is your only hope. And in sincere faith, then recognize that that blood is all-powerful to set you free from your sin. So now I'm broken in my sin, but I stand with confident faith that the blood of Jesus really did something for me. Then I have something to say. And not only do I have something to say, I don't really care what you have to say about what I have to say. And that's where Dr. Lord-Jones stood. All right, let's read. Somebody should play that again, however they did that. Let's read from Psalm 51. We're going to start in verse 7. We'll read through verse 15. If you'll remember, we talked about verse 7 through 12 last week, so we're not going to comment on verse 7 through 12. I just want to read the context, and we'll start uh, studying, commenting on verse 13 through 15. Starting in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, where we'll start today. Then... Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. you're just jumping on with us, you need to know, and I'll just give you this piece of information, that Psalm 51 is David's great prayer of repentance after he has slept with Bathsheba and had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered on the front lines of battle to cover up his own sin. Now his sin has been exposed by a prophet of the Lord, and what we read in Psalm 51 is his own brokenness wrestling with God in prayer over his sin. We started this morning with verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. We commented last week that this is prayer. Every, every line is a petition to God. You cleanse me. You purge me. You create in me a clean heart. I need you to, to interact here, God. I need you to move. You have to change my sinful state. God, do something for me is the prayer of David. And today we'll pick up again with verse 13. Then. Then, meaning after you fulfill those prayers, after you purge me, after you cleanse me, after you deliver me from my brokenness, after you create in me a clean heart, O God, and after you renew in me a right spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways. The broken man or woman who's laid on the ground and cried out to God in prayer and really been convicted of their sin and cried, God, cleanse me, wash me, who's really encountered the gospel, the fact that the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross of Calvary intends to cleanse us from the deepest places of our own iniquity. The man or woman who lays on the ground and cries there. When God does come, And in his sovereign power, God does cleanse you from your guilt and wash you from your shame and deliver you from your blood guiltiness. When God does come and renew in you a right spirit and create in you a clean heart, that man or woman gets up from the ground with something to say. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I want to say a few things here. First, repentance is not only a remorse of guilt. Repentance is, Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so there is a sorrow in in being broken. There is such a thing as having remorse, conviction of the spirit, where you feel sorrowful for your sin. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's not the repentance itself. The remorse, you you should allow God to really move. Don't run from it. But the remorse of sin is not repentance itself. If you get that confused, you'll never make strides in your spiritual progress. You'll just go from one state of sorrow to the next. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. So repentance is not remorse. Repentance is a commitment to not act out the sinful act again, pick the sin. Again, bitterness, gossip, drunkenness, sexual immorality, you pick your sin. Pride, by God, pride. Repentance is a a, a commitment to God to not continue to act out that sin. It is that Repentance is also, this is what I want you to hear this morning. Repentance is also a commitment to speak. So in turning, we feel conviction. We resolve not to participate in these acts of unrighteousness again. And we begin to advocate for the truth. Part of our repentance is a commitment to promote holiness. 
then I will teach transgressors your ways. A piece of brokenness is lying on the ground and saying, God, deliver me, then I will be your mouthpiece. Then I will allow you to speak through me. I will open my mouth and utter your instruction then. And we, we promote holiness from the foundation, from the premise that God himself is holy. Okay, we're not mere moralists. It's not my attempt to, to promote to you that you should live sexually pure because sexual purity produces a certain lifestyle that is beneficial. That is true, but that's not my intent, just to promote sexual purity so that you will have the benefits of a sexually pure life. My intent is to promote sexual purity and holiness in your sexual relationships because God himself is holy. And so we have a culture of death. We need to promote a culture of life because God himself is holy and the life giver. And no man or woman has the right to take life but God himself. We teach integrity because God is whole. We need to allow the Spirit's work, listen to me, to move us from conviction of sin. We need the Spirit to move us from sorrow over our sin. We need the strength of the Spirit to empower us to walk in purity so that we don't stumble in sin again. And then we need the anointing of the Spirit of God to to bathe our words as we proclaim truth. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'll teach transgressors your ways. Ways Now, your ways, that's, that, that is a, a biblical theme, something that happens in Scripture over and over. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a concept, the way of the Lord. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, speaking of Abram, God says, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. God chose Abraham so that he could command and teach Again, then I will teach transgressors. God chose Abraham to command and teach his children the way of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 9. Again, this is in the covenant of God. The Lord will establish you, Israel, as a holy people to himself. He swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, I will establish you if you will keep my commandments and walk in my ways. Psalm 25, verse 4 through 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait on you all the day long. Proverbs 15.10. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. The New Testament believers, you need to know, before they were called Christians at Antioch, they were called members of the way. One scholar comments on Paul's conversion. On the road to Damascus, Saul traveled traveled on the way against the way, yet he was stopped on the way to join the way. Jesus is the way, truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father unless they come by him, the way. In Christ, we find the way to God. 
the way to holiness, both positional holiness, meaning I'm wrapped in the holiness of Jesus, and practical holiness, meaning God is sanctifying me today. He is teaching my feet today to walk in his way. David says, then I will teach sinners your ways. Then David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. And here we learn something that I really don't want you to miss. David's proclamation of truth, of righteousness. When David teaches sinners his way, the, the ways of God, David's entire ministry of proclaiming the truth of the Lord is founded and depended upon his own experience of the mercy of God. Before David is able to proclaim the way, he must first experience God's pure and holy mercy. David will have to have an encounter with the grace of God before he's ever able to proclaim the way. So therefore, in David's proclamation of the way, there is always an invitation to experience and encounter the same mercy that David experienced and encountered. God is not looking for men and women who will sit on their high horse and proclaim their own self-righteousness to the earth. Be like me because I'm better than thou. God is looking for men and women who know their own sin. Who have laid before God and asked for mercy. Deliver me, God. Who have experienced mercy. Who are confident in God's ability to cleanse us. And then when the man or woman who's experienced mercy proclaims the truth, there is always on the back end an invitation to experience mercy. David's proclaiming, teaching, admonishing others to the way of the Lord has to begin with an invitation to encounter the mercy of God that he experienced. Because without that mercy, David has no ability to get up from his position. You are called in your repentance to teach Holiness, to advocate for righteousness. But in your proclamation should always be an invitation to experience the same mercy and grace that you've experienced. Then the church has a commission to proclaim the way of the Lord, always inviting our country, our nation, our community to experience the cross of Christ. So we're not moralists. We proclaim holiness based on the holy nature of God, always extending an invitation to come to the cross of Jesus and to really be washed of your sin. If the cross isn't at the center of your proclamation of integrity, you have a foundational problem. If you just want to talk about other people's sin because you want to talk about other people's sin, you have sin. If you're self-righteous, you're good for nothing. You're good for nothing. Don't hear me this morning patting my own back. All of my ministry, all of your ministry, it is founded fully upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus found in the cross of Calvary. So that David can say, open my lips my mouth may declare your praise. When you've been broken to the place where you're thoroughly sure, and I want to ask you this morning, how sure are you 
that your salvation is only by the blood of Jesus. How sure are you? When you give your testimony, is it, I did this, and I laid down my sin, and I put down the bottle, and then I came to Jesus. Oh, did you come to Jesus, or did he haunt you? Theologians of old used to call him the old hound dog, Jesus, the hound you down. It's your testimony about what you did, or is it about what Jesus did? You have no power in yourself to cause your heart to be born again. If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm not sure if I know Jesus, that's okay because there's nothing you can do. The only way to really be regenerate, to have